The Recipes for Life podcast is a conversation about my favorite ingredients for a healthy human experience. We take an informed look at topics that include nutritional and emotional well-being, as well as expanded consciousness. If you would like to become a qualified health coach, then the Institute for Integrative Nutrition, or IIN for short, can help you achieve your goals. I completed their health coaching course many years ago, which has been one of the catalysts for my own journey into what I now love to do, which is to help people achieve greater health through the sharing of information through my books, seminars, podcasts, TV shows and films. I recommend IIN for anyone wishing to pursue a career in the health coaching and wellness space. IIN is a one-year course, so that if you're a full-time worker, busy parent, or wherever you are in your life, it is flexible enough so you'll be able to complete all the required curriculum. Please see the link included in the podcast show notes or my website to access the free sample class and first module of their program. This will give you a great taste of the format as well as the structure, and you can also utilize my special discount that I can offer you if you decide to sign up. Make sure you tell the admissions team that you're part of the Pete Evans Tuition Savings to claim your very substantial discount. Please visit integrativenutrition.com or email admissions at integrativenutrition.com. Christopher Ryan is the co-author of the New York Times bestseller, Sex at Dawn, How We Mate, Why We Stray, and What It Means for Modern Relationships, which has been translated into 15 languages. After receiving a BA in English and American Literature in 1984, Chris spent the next two decades travelling around the world, pausing in unexpected places to work at decidedly odd jobs. In his mid-30s, Chris decided to return to school to pursue doctoral studies in psychology at Sabre Graduate School in San Francisco, California. Drawing upon his multicultural experience, Chris's research focused on distinguishing the human from the cultural, first by focusing on shamanism and ethnobotany, studying how various societies interact with altered states of consciousness and the sacred plants that provoke them, and later by looking at diverse cultural perspectives on sexuality. His doctoral dissertation was a multidisciplinary investigation of prehistoric human sexual behavior guided by the world-renowned psychologist Stanley Krippner. Chris is finishing a book for Simon & Schuster tentatively called Civilized to Death, Why Everything's Amazing But Nobody's Happy. To find out more about Christopher Ryan, visit his webpage, chrisryanphd.com. That's C-H-R-I-S-R-Y-A-N-P-H-D.com. Christopher, thank you so much for being a part of our podcast, Recipes for Life. And your book is uh, one of the most unique and original pieces of work I've had the uh, chance of reading before. And what I understand is you talk about distinguishing the human from the cultural, and this is something that I'm personally fascinated with. So I'd love for you to explain what this means and why you're committed to sharing this information, please. Uh, well, thank you for having me on your podcast. I'm, I'm honored, especially after seeing the magic pill. I don't, uh, I know you didn't have me on here to talk about your work, but I, I just watched it the other day and was blown away by it. Really. Thank you for that. No, thank you. So the, the, the distinguishing the, the personal from the cultural, from the universal, 
seems to me to be maybe one of the most worthy intellectual pursuits that, that I could come up with. And it seems to come up constantly in my life. I've traveled a lot and I've always been interested in, you know, what is it that we all share as human beings? What is it that we share within a given culture, which we often mistake for universal human attributes? And what is it that's just you and me uh, individually and teasing these things out, it seems to me, is very important in as a first step toward um, figuring out what problems are solvable and on what level they're solvable and which problems may be insoluble. So um, sexuality seems to be an interesting way to look at those things because it's got very strong personal components. It also has very interesting cultural components. And then there are universal layers as well within uh, human sexuality. Before I got into sexuality, my main focus was uh, consciousness and ethnobotany and uh, altered states of consciousness being achieved by um, music or rhythmic movement or or plants. And that has the same sort of three-dimensional quality to it. So I'm really interested in these things that um, sort of resonate on all three of those levels. Well, it's interesting that you say that because quite a few of my guests recently have been talking about the use of plant medicines and also expanding consciousness and looking back into history for clues, but also working with the current science that's out there and saying, hey, maybe we need to take a step back and look at some of this ancient wisdom to help us with our modern day problems. And I'd love for you to Talk about your work on using plant medicines and also the societies and the communities that you visited. You talk about breathing and also uh, drumming and other ceremonies and what you learned through these studies or participations that you were involved in. Yeah, it, you know, I think another, I don't want to jump past your question, but as you were speaking, I was thinking another quality or another experience that fits this description of the three levels is food, which is why you, you probably noticed mm -hmm. we started Sex at Dawn talking about food because yes. people's experience of food is so intimate that they think that their personal experience must be a universal human experience. And yet it turns mm. out it's very much culturally constrained. Um, but as far as the... Getting back to your question about the uh, consciousness and ethnobotany, uh, I think, you know, what I learned, the most important thing I learned probably is just to have these sorts of questions. You know, when you have an experience with a psychedelic plant, one of the doors that opens up is the door of recognizing to to what extent your sense of reality is constrained by what you've been told and what you've accepted uh, and what your language, your your actual language, linguistic or perhaps your cognitive language, the ways you think, the the possibilities that you entertain, how your experience is constricted by those things. And so it's almost like the experiments, that have demonstrated that when people have a word for a certain color, they recognize that color more quickly and 
in tests when their f- colors are flashed. If you don't have a word for it, you almost can't see it. Um, and mm-hmm. so I think that's a very important experience. And then beyond that, uh, for me personally, I think psychedelics were radicalizing or, or maybe they potentiated radical thinking that I was already doing in the fact that the more I study them and the cultures that have used uh, plants in particular for sacred uses, I saw how universally they were respected and revered as offering an opportunity to speak with or to travel in, in dimensions and realms that were sacred and, and very special and, and uh, owed a great amount of respect. They were seen as the greatest gift from the gods or from the spirit world virtually mm-hmm. in every society that's ever had access to them. And then at the time, I looked at my own society uh, where people are put in cages for life for um, you know, distributing psilocybin mushrooms at a Grateful Dead concert. Uh, and I just thought, wow, what is that? Why, why are they so feared? People are going to prison for a longer amount of time for having a bag of mushrooms in their pocket than for second degree murder. What does that mm. say about this society? Why are we so terrified when other societies were reverent? So that sort of leads down all sorts of interesting wormholes in terms of politics and <laughs> understanding what civilization is and, and what's actually happening in Western civilization, at least from my perspective. I've just finished a book called Civilized to Death, so you can see where that led me. <laughs> mm. And it's really interesting. I mean, in Australia, our national one of our national pastimes and social behaviors is to drink alcohol. And in certain parts of the world, that is considered illegal. <laughs> so we add, add alcohol generally is, does not give you those experiences of knowing yourself on that sacred level or on that uh, personal journey. Or you can learn from alcohol, but it's very different, wouldn't you say? Yeah, yeah. Alcohol, I think, is a deeply profane drug and leads away from reverence or wonder or, you know, worship into, you know, it's very casual and it can be fun. And I'm not, you know, I enjoy a beer as much as the next guy, but it certainly isn't a substance that you use to get, to gain insight into the nature of existence. Mm. So I want to really delve into your book, Sex at Dawn, because it plants seeds for people to really question what it means for them to have sexual relationships, intimate relationships. And I have studied quite extensively about the foods that we ate prior to agriculture, and you've done the same thing in regards to relationships, sexual activity, our dawn of sex, basically. And I'd love for you to talk about this for the next few questions and and really impart some of this wisdom with our listeners. And I want to ask you the question, why did you start down this path? What was it that attracted you to this field? And was it personal? Was it something that you thought needed to be shared? Take us through this process, please. Uh, The triggering event was the Bill Clinton, Monica Lewinsky scandal, (laughs) believe it or not. (laughs) 
<laughs> uh, when that happened, I was uh, in graduate school and I was sort of, I was already working on a different area, totally different area of research for my dissertation, but I was still in the early stages and that happened. And I, I, I just found it difficult. It didn't make sense to me because, you know, we're told that men seek power in order to have access to women. And I saw this man who was by most measures, the most powerful man in the world mm -hmm. who had had a consensual relationship with a young woman. His wife didn't really seem to be that concerned about it. And if she was, that was their private discussion. And yet he was being exoriated by the American political establishment. Mm -hmm. uh, and I just thought, well, wait a minute, if, if power is a means to sex and here's the most powerful man in the world who has a little sex and then he's being publicly humiliated what the, what, this story doesn't make sense. What's going on here? So I picked up, mm. I happened to see a book. I was in a bookstore. I happened to see this book called the moral animal uh, by Robert Wright. And I got the book. It's about evolutionary psychology, which was still a pretty new uh, discipline at the time. And it was sort of explaining what evolutionary psychology is and what the um, explanation for why men and women approach sexuality differently. It's because we have differing agendas. And uh, the story was that women, it's the story we've all heard, which is that women are approaching sexuality in terms of trading fidelity for resources from men. Mm -hmm. And so they're essentially prostitutes. They're trading their sexual, uh, sexual access for shelter, for food, for protection, for goods and services from men. And this is, mm -hmm. and then in, men want the fidelity in exchange because men want to know that those babies are theirs genetically. So they're not investing in another man's, progeny. And so this made sense to me. It seemed like, oh, that explains it. That's why, you know, men are all horny and women are reluctant and like, men are spending all this money and chasing women around. And it sort of explained things. And I went and I talked to my girlfriend at the time and her friends and women that I worked with. I was, I had a lot of women in my life at that time who were very smart and outspoken. And almost without exception, the women just said, Chris, that's ridiculous. That's not true. That's a Victorian view. That, that's not why we have sex. We're not all gold diggers. That's all. And so I thought, well, all right. Yeah, well, they make they have a good point, too. So I went back. You know, I was a grad student, so I was accustomed to checking the sources. So I went back mm -hmm. and looked at the source material for this book and started reading the scientific papers. And as soon as I did that, the whole story started to fall apart. This narrative that seemed to make so much sense started to crumble and collapse. And I realized that it wasn't science. It was politics. And this vision of women was, in fact, a political argument. And the science didn't support it. So I found mm. many examples of hunter-gatherer groups that didn't even know that sex caused babies. So if mm. they don't know sex caused babies, why on earth would they be trading fidelity, uh, sexual fidelity for goods and services for men if that connection isn't explicit? Or 
Uh, I found many examples, in fact, practically universally, hunter-gatherers share resources. So the idea that the man would only share his resources with the particular female, that made no sense. Because if that happened, that man would be kicked out of the group. If you go and you kill a deer Hmm. and you bring the deer back to the group and say, sorry, the meat's only for my woman and my child, you're going to be ostracized. That's not the way hunter-gatherer social systems actually work. Uh, And then I found references to bonobos. This is the early 90s before anybody was really talking about bonobos. And I came across these bonobos and like, wait a minute, I've read all this stuff about chimpanzees. They're mentioned everywhere. And it's this male dominant, violent, uh, sort of Hobbesian example of human evolutionary history. Nobody mentions bonobos who happen to be equally related to humans in terms of DNA. Uh, our last common ancestor with chimps and bonobos was exactly at the same time. So they're equally important in any of these discussions. And yet they're not even mentioned in this book and in many other books that I've been reading. Why is that? Well, bonobos are female dominant. They're egalitarian. They're highly sexual. They're having sex in all different combinations. Nobody knows whose babies belong to who. Nobody cares. It's an alternative vision of human potential human sexual evolution that actually aligns much more closely with our species. Bonobos look into each other's eyes when they have sex. They hold hands, they kiss, they do all this stuff that only humans, humans and bonobos are the only primates that have sex looking into each other's faces. So there, there are all these very striking uh, bits of information that I started to uncover that in any sober, equal, uh, sort of objective scientific discussion would have been included in that discussion. And yet these were totally removed from the conversation. And that struck me as something really worth looking into. That struck me as like gold as far as uh, a graduate student goes. You find something that's right there that everybody is studiously ignoring and it's very important. So anyway, that's how I got into it. And I did my doctoral um, dissertation on human sexual behavior and prehistory. And then like a decade later or something, I finally got around to expanding it into a book, which became Sex at Dawn. <laughs> so what was the purpose of the book for you on a personal level? Was it to help plant some seeds to for people to look at themselves differently or is it just to share a different truth or or another truth that you'd uncovered? Well, once I started pulling at that thread and the tapestry came apart, it revealed an alternative understanding of human sexual evolution. And I quickly realized that this understanding, although it, could be very discomforting for some people, um, could also provide a great deal of relief to people. And I wouldn't say mm. this, this wasn't a primary motivator for me. The primary motivator is simply like, wow, this, I think this is true. And I think the story that we've been told isn't true. And so, you know, if truth matters, then this is important. And this is about an aspect of our lives 
you know, that everyone has to deal with on some level and that is causing huge amounts of suffering totally unnecessarily. Uh, and so, yeah, I mean, the first motivator was just, wow, this makes more sense than the story that we've been told. Um, and then the second secondary level was a lot of people are suffering because they're working under false assumptions. And so there's an urgent need to get this information out there and let people realize that there's nothing wrong with them. I, you know, people, the, the essential argument of sex is that we evolved as a species that was relatively promiscuous. So our ancestors had several ongoing sexual relationships at any given time. Now people misunderstand that. And, you know, our use of the word promiscuous we're very careful to say that we're talking about hunter gatherer bands where everyone knew each other. So it's not like people were having sex with strangers. This, these were um, already very intimate um, groups that had grown up together that spent years and years together. Um, so we're not talking mm -hmm. about casual unfeeling sexual relations. And we're also not arguing that there were no sort of sacred long-term ongoing relationships. So there could have been, a pair bonding that was very important. There could have been primary relationships that lasted for a lifetime. We're just arguing mm -hmm. that they weren't typically sexually exclusive. And because our species evolved in that context, we have appetites. We have, we're, we're drawn by novelty as much in our diet, in our travel, in our appreciation for music and art as we are in our sexuality. So it makes sense. It fits into what we know about human beings. And so if you're with a partner who you love and feel very bonded to, and yet you still notice other people and feel attracted to other people, a lot of us look at that and feel like failures, like there's something wrong with me or there's something wrong with my partner. Why, why do I still have these feelings when I'm married to this great guy? Like there must be something wrong with our marriage. And what I really wanted to show is like, no, there's nothing wrong with your marriage. There's nothing wrong with you. You're just a human being. And you're starting from a false assumption uh, as to what sort of animal you are. And if you understand what sort of animal we all are, you'll be more compassionate toward yourself, toward your partners, toward other people. And, you know, what you choose to do in terms of behavior, how you choose to manage your relationships is a whole different question that we don't even really get into in the book. The only advice we really get into is advising people to start from a more accurate, um, objectively true sense of what sort of animal homo sapiens are. But it's interesting that you say that because so many people use labels these days to identify themselves. Some people say that they're vegetarian or they're vegan or they're Catholic or they're Muslim or whatever identity it is. And I generally say, why don't you go back to the basics and start off with that you're human. And from that, then you can work out what foods best support you, what's the best way to think about your spirituality or connection to self instead of putting yourself with this label. So, Christopher, I'd love to get your definition of what it means to be human. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a trick question right there, if I've ever heard one. You know, uh, following up your I, – I think humans are omnivores. I think I think that's a 
key fact about our species. We um, are one of the few species that can eat many, many different types of foods. And I think that that translates into the rest of our lives. We're highly intelligent, highly social, and it's our social networks that characterize our species, I believe. You know, mm -hmm. you, you hold humans up against other mammals. We're nowhere near the fastest. We're nowhere near the strongest. You know, the, you pick any quality and there are many, many animals that do those things better than we do. What we do better than any other animal is form complex, uh, flexible social networks. So you put one man up against a bear, forget about it. But you put five men up against a bear, the bear's in big trouble. Uh, we can mm -hmm. take down mastodons. We can do all sorts of horrible and wonderful things when we get together. And so our sexuality, uh, I believe, and we've argued in Sex of Dawn, plays into that part of uh, – has been co-opted to support the social networking which it's also done with bonobos, chimpanzees to a lesser extent, and dolphins, all of which are highly complex social animals, and um, all of which also have sex for non-reproductive purposes. Most mammals, in fact, virtually all mammals except the ones I just named, only have sex when the female is ovulating and can get pregnant. Humans are off the scale in terms of the minuscule amount of our sexual behavior that actually results in pregnancy. Um, so clearly it's, it's taken on a role in our uh, species that is not primarily about reproduction. So what is human? I think uh, we are, we're characterized by our social groups and our intelligence. Uh, most of our intelligence, it has been argued, and I think correctly, has come about as a result of living in these social groups, where we're using that brain power to anticipate the behavior of other people, to put ourselves in the position of other people and, and try to see things from their perspective. Uh, and to manage multiple relationships that are all complicated and changing all the time. I have gotten into uh, a thing in this, this book I mentioned earlier where I've sort of taken it to another level. I don't, I don't know that we can really get into it too much here in your podcast. I don't want to dominate it with my conjecture, but I, I have gotten into a, a way of thinking about humans that is sort of sees human beings as a superorganism where we have similar to how, you know, we're composed of other organisms, right? Like the microbiome, which I know you're familiar mm -hmm. with is many millions of organisms that don't share our DNA in our gut, on our skin, yep. in our eyes, in our blood. And without these organisms, we would die immediately. So to, mm -hmm look at a person as an individual is sort of a mental construct. That person is actually a complex community of organisms interacting like an anthill or a termite mound. And yeah. I think that there's a level at which we are also subsumed within a larger organism. Um, 
And yeah, that's, that's what I've been getting into recently in my thinking about where we're going and what civilization means. What sort of organism do we compose as a species? Mm, I love that. Yeah. And I guess that brings us to a comment that you've made uh, recently to, to myself, where you feel like the only sane path forward involves a step back, whether that is looking at our food, our exercise, our community, sexuality, as we've discussing, stress, spirituality, psychedelics. You say there's a common thread in this because even in the start of your book, you're talking about how people in modern day relationships, most of them fail, which cause stress disease to the body, to the family, to the structure of society. So is going back the answer in your, in your opinion, to take clues and uh, information and bring it into the modern day world? Uh, yeah, I think it's the only, the only path forward that is going to be viable will contain the wisdom of the path past. Um, yeah, T.S. Eliot in, in one of the four quartets, he, there's a line where he says, uh, the end of all our, we shall not cease from our exploration and the end of all our travels will be to return to where we began and know mm. the place for the first time. And I think that same sentiment, uh, you find in the writing of Carl Jung, who's, you know, talking about the archetypes, these ancient recurring themes in human narratives and stories and someone like Joseph Campbell, the great mythologist who wrote the hero with a thousand faces who showed that all these societies around the world have essentially the same origin story. There's this story about someone, a young person who sets out to explore searching for something and they have, think of Odysseus and they, they have these experiences and challenges that they overcome and they, they find secrets and they work these things out and then they never really find this thing, the Holy Grail or whatever it is they're looking for, but they come back home after their travels and they realize that the thing they were looking for was here all the time. They just couldn't recognize it. They couldn't see it without having had those experiences and gaining the wisdom that they had on their travels. You know, um, mm -hmm. that's probably the oldest story there is. And I look at human civilization now and I, I feel like we're at a turning point and I'm sure every generation feels they're at a turning point, but it does feel that we're at a unique moment here where the, uh, the playwright, uh, I forget his name right now. He was married to Marilyn Monroe. Uh, his name will come to me in a second, but he said an era can be considered over when its basic illusions have been exhausted. And I feel <laughs> that we're at this moment where the basic illusions of Western civilization are exhausted, particularly progress. It's exhausted where we, we know the next generation is not going to live better than their parents did. Their life expectancy is lower. They're, they're suffering far more diseases. Their rates of depression and suicide are higher. We're looking at the, the end of, of, you know, eco, ecological devastation all over the planet where people do not feel that things are getting better. And I think this is the first time in centuries that people around the world 
are agreeing that this road isn't leading us to a progressively better place. It's leading us into darkness. And so I think we're at this turning point. And perhaps if we're lucky, we're turning back toward home. We're at the furthest point on our journey. And it's a point where we look, if it's in medicine, if it's in spirituality, if it's in exercise patterns, if it's in diet, we're all looking to our prehistoric ancestors for guidance on the best way to live, right? And in your field, you're looking, you're saying, people are saying, well, look, all this stuff that we've produced in the 50s, 60s, 70s, all this processed food that was supposed to make, you know, the world better, all this, uh, the green revolution where we can create so much corn that'll feed these animals. And it's all a big disaster, it's not ecologically sustainable. Mm. It's not healthy. It's not good for the animals. It's not good for human beings. It's not good for the rivers with all this runoff into the oceans. It's not good for anybody. This We've been going down the wrong path. And so what do we need to do now? Well, we look at how our ancestors live. What did they eat? They ate varied diet, many different plants, um, some animal proteins, high fat, low carbohydrates. They were active. They moved um, every day, 10 kilometers, not high intensity, working out on a machine, walking, jogging, running, natural movement. So they slept as much as they wanted to, had good, deep sleep. So we're seeing uh, that the way our ancestors lived is, in fact, the best way for us to live. And yet it's hard for a lot of people to wrap their heads around that because pre-agricultural human life has been so demonized um, by Western civilization, obviously for self-interested reasons. You always demonize the alternatives. You know, it's, it's akin to telling the animals in the zoo how lucky they are to be safe in their cages. Hmm. And I think that, so that's what civilized to death is about. It's expanding the argument uh, that we made in sex at dawn from just sexuality and looking at a much larger picture. And so, yeah, I think if we are to to survive, the best possible outcome will be for us to have taken the lessons that we learned on this journey and essentially return home. Now, maybe we return home with the technology of birth control, which is very important to reduce the global population to a sustainable, mm -hmm. comfortable level. Um, solar power, geothermal power, wind power. We can... If there are a hundred million of us on the planet, we can live in paradise, but we have to choose to do that. Hmm. Uh, we could take this <laughs> take this for a very long uh, long walk. I think uh, these type of conversations and topics that you're talking about, and I'm, I'm fascinated by it. But I want to get back to your original conversation where we're talking about sexuality because a lot of people that are listening may be in a position where they're unsure of how to navigate their sexual feelings and their desires and how to do that in a modern day world. So you mentioned that we're very sexual, that we're a very sexual species. So can you elaborate on that and uh, give us a uh, definition of that or, or an explanation for that, please? Well, yeah, I mean, you can start with frequency. Um, as I said, human beings uh, are among a handful of species that have sex for non-reproductive purposes. 
if you think about it, sex is, it takes energy, it takes time, it makes you vulnerable to predators, uh, it makes you vulnerable to sexually transmitted diseases. It's a relatively risky activity, so it doesn't really make sense uh, from a purely biological perspective to do it when it's not necessary. And so why do human beings have sex when uh, women are not fertile? It, there's no, they're pregnant, they're postmenopausal, they're menstruating. Uh, we have sex in all sorts of configurations that cannot possibly result in pregnancy. And so in order to understand why we need to, to acknowledge that sex isn't about reproduction primarily for humans, mm -hmm. and that's very unusual. So that's the first stop. And then to take it a bit further, if you start doing the numbers, you see that, uh, you know, let's say gorillas, which are the next closest primate um, related to humans after chimps and bonobos. Gorillas have sex, like most mammals, only when the female's ovulating. And they have sex uh, about 12 times. They only have intercourse and they have sex about 12 times per birth. If you look at the numbers for humans, it's somewhere around a thousand times per birth. So wow. even just that ratio is like, wow, that's a lot of sex to make a baby, you know, a lot of unnecessary going through the motions there. And, you know, then you get into things like, um, why, why do women have multiple orgasms? Why is that even possible? Uh, <laughs> You know, why do we look at the the kinds of pornography that we look at online? Why are certain uh, types of pornography much more popular than others? Basically, in, in Sex at Dawn, which I should mention was co-authored with my wife, Casilda Jetta, who's a psychiatrist, we looked at four sources of information, which uh, you and I have talked about a little bit, the primatology so looking at mm -hmm. chimps and bonobos that's one source another source is anthropology looking at hunter gatherers what are their beliefs what are their sexual practices how do they deal with children raising children and all this sorts of stuff uh we also looked at contemporary psychosexual research so what turns people on what sorts of issues do they come to therapy with you know relationship problems that are recurrent and then the last source of information is anatomy and physiology. So all of these things point to the same picture. In terms of anatomy and physiology, we have uh, women's multiple orgasm. We have the change uh, that happens in a woman's uh, reproductive tract in her um, vagina when she has an orgasm. The pH changes uh, and makes it much more hospitable to the sperm cells of a man who ejaculates after she's had an orgasm. So there's a reproductive mm -hmm. point to this. Um, the woman is much more active in choosing the sperm that's going to impregnate her than has been supposed. The woman was sort of seen as this passive receptacle uh, and the men were competing, but it turns out that the competition happens within the woman and the woman's, uh, body chemistry can give advantage or disadvantage to the sperm of different men who are all within her at the same time. 
Uh, there are all sorts of, I mean, the, the shape of the human penis. I, I don't know how, what your restrictions are in terms of language, language or what we could talk about here, but you could go for it. All right. Well, the shape of the human penis, the size of the penis, the testicles being outside the body, um, the repeated thrusting movement of human intercourse, uh, which is unknown in other animals. Most animals, the penis is inserted, the male ejaculates, and the penis is removed about seven seconds for most of the primates. This uh -huh. repeated thrusting action combined with the shape of the penis creates a vacuum in the woman's um vaginal canal that serves to pull any pre-existing sperm cells within her, pulls them back from the egg. So anyway, there. Are, if you read Sexodon, you'll get more of this information than I can possibly lay out right now, but it's a pretty clear picture. But you talk about that in your book as well, and also some of the talks I've listened to, like there's cultures, uh, one in, in China, for instance, where uh, the women choose multiple partners based on the traits that they would like to have in their child. Yeah. Whether it be strength, good looking, humor, these type of things. Can, so elaborate on that for me, please. Yeah, that's, that's known as partable paternity um, to the anthropologists who've written about it. Uh, the idea there, and I, I alluded to this earlier, that the standard narrative uh, presented in evolutionary psychology and elsewhere that men trade resources for fidelity really falls apart when you look at hunter-gatherer groups. And one of the ways it falls apart is this idea that one act of sex can result in a baby, which we assume everybody knows and turns out they don't know. Uh so in half a dozen different groups in the Amazon and a couple in Papua New Guinea, and these even the groups in the Amazon have no contact with one another. There's no common language. They don't trade. So it's a pretty safe bet that this belief uh, system arose independently in many different places. So we can infer from that that it was probably pretty common in prehistory. And the idea is that a fetus is literally made of accumulated semen. And so all women, once they are menstruating, are a little bit pregnant, but they don't start to form a fetus until they've accumulated enough semen that it then becomes a, a fetus. And so given that sort of cumulative nature of fetus building, women will choose which men they want to contribute to that fetus based upon quality. So a woman, as most women want to have a child who's smart and funny and good looking and, and strong. So she'll have sex with a funny guy and a good looking guy and the strong guy. And <laughs> in order to get the different qualities of all those men included in her baby, eventually, and then when she does get pregnant and have a child, those different men will all consider themselves to be co-fathers of the child. And uh, so they feel a special connection to the child. So that's, that's an example of a way of thinking that makes no sense at all in terms of the sort of standard, um, you know, Darwinian vision of human sexual evolution. Um, yeah. And then there are other <laughs> examples, like in China, the Mosuo people, where the 
The biological father has no role in the child's life. The child is raised by his mother and his mother's brothers and sisters. Um, and biological paternity is totally irrelevant in that society. Wow. So uh, let's talk about monogamy for a, a little bit. And you talk about sexual monogamy and you also talk about are we sexual omnivores? So anybody that's in a long-term relationship and they've got these desires or thoughts or ideas and or they're depressed, I know you don't like to give advice or don't advise people what to do with their current situations, but how do you shed a little bit of light onto this to if people are in a I guess, a darker place in their relationships at this particular point in time? Well, I think that it's important in any relationship, for any relationship to be based on truth. There can't mm -hmm. be intimacy without truth. So I think the tragedy of modern marriage is that so many people have sacrificed truth in order to maintain the relationship. And they, they were well-intentioned when they did that, but that very quickly develops into a relationship that requires both partners to lie about who they are and what they feel. And if you're in a position where you're both unable to be honest about your experience, there's really no way to, to have that be a healthy relationship because it's founded on false beliefs and false, uh, expressions. And, and so, you know, there's no way for me to offer advice to people who I don't know. And, you know, the specifics of their relationship are unknown to me. So, uh, and also, I don't purport to have any answers along those lines, but mm -hmm. I do feel that it's very, that it's essential to move to a place of truth. So, and I hope that Sex at Dawn has some positive impact in that way. A lot of people have written to us saying, you know, my husband and I read your book and, you know, our relationship, like, from the outside, it hasn't changed. Like we're not going to become swingers or, you know, bring other lovers <laughs> in or like, we're not, we're not doing any of that stuff, but just talking about the book enabled us to discuss some things that we've never talked about before. And that's made everything much better. That's to me, that's fantastic. The book is not yeah. saying everyone should do this or do that beyond let's talk openly and honestly about what we desire. You know, people are hiding their appetites from each other. They're hiding their experiences from each other. They're lying about their dreams and their fantasies. It's very difficult to have intimacy when you're lying about major parts of your experience. And again, there's no blame here. I understand that people find themselves in these positions um, with the best of intentions, nobody goes into it expecting to lie, but that's what happens. And so I feel that the first, the fundamental first step has to be to just acknowledge who you are. And, mm. you know, I say, you mentioned vegetarians and vegans and these labels we give to ourselves. And, you know, one of the lines I used in my Ted talk is that 
sexuality is like, you know, food, as we were saying before, and monogamy in that spectrum is like vegetarianism. It can be great. It can be healthy. It can be ethical. It, I mean, there are very strong arguments to be made for vegetarianism, but just because you've decided to be a vegetarian doesn't make you an herbivore. So, mm -hmm. you know, choosing to be a vegetarian doesn't mean that barbecue is going to stop smelling good to you. And similarly <laughs> with monogamy, you can choose to be monogamous and to live your life that way because it fits better and it makes sense for you and you're more comfortable with it. And that's great. But the fact that you're still attracted to other people shouldn't be seen as a failure. It should be seen as a predictable, mm. totally natural uh, happening. And so therefore, when you recognize that your partner is attracted to other people, that shouldn't be seen as threatening and disgraceful and horrible. That should, that's totally normal. And if you can talk about those things with each other, then your relationship will be much more flexible and lasting than if you have that sort of rigidity that comes from denying what's obvious which is that we're omnivores and you can be a vegetarian, but you're still going to be an omnivore. Yeah. And I guess we've been speaking about uh, male and female throughout this conversation here and, and being human, but uh, how does this relate to same-sex preferences and marriages and uh, homosexuality and, and different types of uh, persuasions that are out there? Uh, yeah, that's, that's a very good question. I'm glad you asked it because it's one of the things that I wish we had uh, covered in greater detail in the book. We don't really go into that much um, simply because the science is sort of built around this male-female um, assumption of, of gender identity. And so we don't really get into it much, but the evidence is, is very interesting in terms of hunter-gatherers and same-sex relationships. It, it becomes very complicated to talk about because it's like it relates to what I was saying earlier about how when you have a word for something, you can see it better um, and you perceive it. Uh, we have words for things that we assume because there's a word, it's a thing. So uh, I know that sounds confusing, but homosexuality, for example, when I say that word, we sort of know what we're talking about or think we do. But when you take that out of the culture and start looking at other cultures, it gets very problematic. For example, there's a tribe in Papua New Guinea. It's a very warlike tribe, uh, very macho, male dominant. And they believe that semen contains the essence of masculinity. And so they're very careful about ejaculating with a woman because they're afraid the woman will steal their masculinity and, um, semen can be toxic for women. It can, it can interfere with their femininity. It has all these magical powers. So the young boys who want to grow up to be the most manly, uh, aggressive warriors will ingest as much semen as they possibly can, uh, because it has this magical masculine quality. Now, looked at from outside, we would see, we would call that homosexual behavior. But within that culture, there's no conception of it as anything aberrant. That's totally normal male behavior. So how do we define these things? In other societies, mm -hmm. 
someone is born in a man's body, but that person says, I'm a woman, that's fine. You're a woman. There's no confusion about it because the spirit of that person is a woman. The body doesn't matter. And then that woman can marry a more conventional man. And that's seen as totally normal. In fact, those wives are seen as sort of um, superior in many ways because they tend to be bigger and stronger and can work harder and so on and so forth. So these conceptions, these ideas of what it is to be gay or lesbian or queer and like we're, we're trying to define these things in our own society, they're very much culturally confined definitions. And when you start going outside of your culture and looking at how these things are experienced in other cultures, it can get very, very difficult to talk about because the words don't mean the same things anymore. So I guess it comes back to, uh, as uh, John Lennon said, or the Beatles said, all, all we need is love. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and also, in the end, the love you take is equal to the love you make, right? Um, yeah, I think uh, love and acceptance and, and uh, compassion are pretty sure things uh, in terms of working our way through these things. You know, we, everything is changing all the time within a person's life. And, you know, you talk about female sexuality in order to, to really speak intelligently about female sexuality. You have to acknowledge that it changes through a woman's menstrual cycle. A woman's behavior and desires are different when she's ovulating than they are a week previously or a week later. This has been well demonstrated in hundreds of scientific studies. Um, uh, women's sexual response changes dramatically over their lifetime, as does men's, but women's much more radically. So a great deal of what is published as representative science concerning female sexuality, the subjects are undergraduate American university students that are, you know, convenient for these sorts of studies done by graduate students. And they're not the least bit representative. A 19-year-old American sitting in her psychology 101 class at nine o'clock in the morning is in no way a representative example of a human female. Mm. So when Cassie and I were working on the research for Sex at Dawn, that's one of the things that she was very uh, helpful with when I would point out a study saying, oh, look at this, you know, 40% of women rarely or never experience orgasm from intercourse. She was the one who pointed out, wait a minute, that's American women. That's American undergraduate <laughs> women. You know, she's from Mozambique and she's did a great deal of research in sexuality. And she said in Mozambique, it would, it's nothing like that. It's more like 90, 95% of women have orgasm mm -hmm. from intercourse there. It's very much culturally determined. And, uh, and yet the science is very much based on these, this very restricted pool of, um, study subjects. And what I love about reading about you and getting to know you a little bit, Christopher, is that, uh, and I think you've just hit the nail on the head there for how to wrap this up is you've explored 
so many different cultures. You've had so many different experiences in your life. And going back to your concept about humans being part of this larger organism, I believe is about seeing different cultures, experiencing different uh, experiences in our lives and getting out of our regular day-to-day, I guess, existence and seeing the world and and opening ourselves up to new ideas, concepts and beliefs that uh, you only get through personal experience. So are you still a traveler? Are you still an explorer? (laughs) Oh, yeah. I'm I'm actually leaving on a trip uh, in two days. I have a a van, a camper van uh, that I built out with a bedroom, a little bed in the back. And, you know, my wife and I are heading off on about a month trip, probably in a couple of days. Awesome. Well, I, I just want to thank you for giving us your time today and sharing your information. And I, 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 this is one of my favorite podcasts so far because we've covered a lot of different information that I'm sure will plant some seeds for some serious thought. So I thank you so much, Christopher, and I look forward to your new book. And uh, I will let everybody know where they can, where they can find out more information about you. So thank you. We love you, and have a wonderful road trip. All right. Thank you very much. It's it's been a pleasure to connect with you. The information, views, and opinions expressed in this podcast should not be treated as a substitute for nutritional, medical, or other advice by a qualified professional. Guests in this podcast express their own opinions, experiences, and conclusions. Nothing in this podcast should be used to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any medical condition. Neither Pete Evans nor any sponsor endorse any views, opinions, or conclusions expressed or shared in this podcast podcast.